Um, if you have your Bibles with you, will you turn me in the Word of God to John chapter 9? And today we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And if you don't have your Bibles, um, it will be on the overhead for you. This is the Word of God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he has been born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Amen, the word of God. Whose fault is it? That's kind of the ringing question we'll be wrestling with today. Whose fault is it? Um, in the small things of life, this is what I wonder also. Uh, when I go to a drive through which I swear I haven't done in a long time to get fast food, but when I do, if I have in my past life, and I go, the first thing that I do is I open the bag and I look at the container of fries to see if they hooked me up or not. And more often than not, it's not enough fries in the box. And they immediately begin to ask, which pimply-faced teenager, whose fault is it that they were not doing their job? Other small things is my packages aren't delivered on time, and I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting for the thing that I ordered from Amazon that I don't need again and again. But it's annoying when you're expecting a package on Thursday before 12 and it doesn't come and you sit there and you ask, whose fault is this? Or the grade on the midterm that you didn't study for, but at least you prayed for seven seconds before you took the test. Or the presentation at work that you didn't really prepare for, but you prayed under your breath for three seconds. And the midterm goes horribly wrong or the presentation at work goes horribly bad. And you wonder, most of us, whose fault was that? And if you're anything like me, you say, it's my group or it's the professor, they don't understand, or my boss doesn't get it. Or maybe some of you argue with your husband or wife, and at a certain point, if you've argued ever with your husband or wife, it's not about what you're arguing about, it's about who's right, whose fault is it. Recently, I got into not an argument, but a loving conversation with my wife, and I just didn't want to be wrong that day. And so it wasn't about what we were arguing about, which was she said something, I disagreed, it wasn't a big deal, but my feelings were hurt. So it wasn't about what, what she said, it was about you're wrong, and just be wrong, it's your fault. Now I'm glad you're smiling with me in these small situations and circumstances, but the question of whose fault is it also applies to larger things in life. Recently driving on the highway, there was a car accident, and there was a man lying on the ground, and they had a tent over his body, and whose fault was it? Recently I got a phone call saying someone's grandmother got diagnosed with stage four cancer, and... She's going to die, and we always ask the question in grief, whose fault? 
when I see news day after day after day of exploitation and hardship and suffering and trafficking and, and brokenness in the world, I, I ask myself, whose fault is it? Who is that wrong here? Jesus in the text is walking along with his disciples, and they pass by, quote, unquote, a man blind from birth. Now, for most of us, as we're reading this, we're just going to kind of continue on, but John specifically uses a man blind from birth to tell us something, to communicate that this man was not okay, that he was forever destined to never see the light of the sun, to never be able to get a full education, to never get a job. In fact, he would always be in need, a beggar, destitute. He was a worthless human being for all intents and purposes. He was a man blind from birth. He could have just said Jesus and his disciples passed by a blind man, but what John wants to do is point out the absolute darkness that this, that this man physically and spiritually is in. In verse 2, the disciples seeing this blind man, instead of showing compassion, instead of showing grace or mercy, or at the very least kind of empathy, the disciples asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, who sinned? In other words, whose fault is it that this man is blind? Is it his fault? Or is it his parents' fault? Is it his fault? Or is it his parents' fault? What did they do to deserve this? Now, this sounds like a weird thing because John tells us that he was born, born blind. But actually, according to the Old Testament and historical Jewish perspective, sin could be done in the womb by a fetus so badly to the point where you could be born crippled, born blind. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that Esau was so troublesome in the womb that he was cursed and that's how he came out and was just a knucklehead. Joseph was a trickster, not because he was born and then he, looks the, he learned the ways of tricksterdom or whatever that is, but he was kind of sinful in the womb of his mother. And secondly, Old Testament law and Jewish tradition tells us that a parent's sin could be so egregious that it would be passed down to their children in the form of punishment. So Hitler's kids are in a lot of trouble. My children are in a lot of trouble, and probably most of you in this room as well. That was a joke. We're allowed to smile. Everybody relax just a little bit. We're a little too serious right now. There's this old saying in, in, in Jewish history that says, there is no death without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity or wrongdoing. In other words, if there is any form of suffering, hardship, or failure in your life, it is your fault directly. So this man was blind because of something he did wrong directly in his life or something his parents did before he was born. So the question goes back to whose fault is this? So the disciples actually reveal two things about them when they ask this question. One, they want to know whose fault is it so I can judge them, so we can judge this person that is so sinful and broken that he wasn't blind from like the age four, but he was born blind. And two, they judge him in a way where they're saying, not only is he sinful, but we are better. Look at this sinful blind man from birth who sits on the roadside begging because that's the best his life is ever going to get. And in comparison to him, Jesus, look at these holy disciples walking after you. These guys who are not blind, not crippled, and able to do whatever we want because you chose these righteous 12 to walk in your footsteps. The disciples actually judge and condemn this man, and they elevate or view themselves with a sense of pride. So whose fault was it? Verse 3. 
Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus answers the disciples by not even answering their question. He shifts by revealing the new reality of hope that the gospel presents. And this is a monumental part of John chapter 9, but actually the whole book of, of, of John. Because what he's saying here is that in the Old Testament, you were deserving of not only condemnation of your sins, but you were deserving of condemnation and everything bad that ever happened to you in your life. One of my favorite skit shows of all time is The Chappelle Show. I know most of you are either not cool or too young to know what that show is about. But in the, in the Chappelle show, there was this one short skit where it was about the haters. And, and this guy is talking to, it's, it's about all these professional haters. And this guy is talking to his enemies. And he says, I hope all the bad things happen to you and only you. And I hope the rest of your life is just the worst ever. And I hope that you suffer for the rest of your days. That was the Old Testament. Not the Chappelle show, but that statement was the Old Testament. Because according to the Old Testament law, if you did these things, you were worthy and righteous and deserving of not only God's love, but God's blessing. But if you could not uphold the laws of the Old Testament, you were not only condemned, but you were rejected as evil and worthy of the punishments and more that you received. This is why the Old Testament was a loser's game. Because we would never be able to accomplish, we would never be able to do enough ever to be perfectly righteous in the eyes of the law. And so here, Jesus, according to the disciples' question, it's not, it says, it's not about his condemnation. Yes, he is experiencing blindness. Yes, it's an unfortunate thing. Yes, this is broken worldview and all that stuff. But this man's sin is no longer about condemning. But in me, it's about the potential in faith. This man is broken because he could be saved by my work of grace, that the work of God might be displayed in him. This is no longer about condemnation, but it's about hope. You know, I'm smiling because I realize that that's probably the 47th time I've said that today. And I've also realized that every time I've said that phrase, we don't change. We don't smile. We're not impacted. We're not convicted. We're not thankful. We're not humbled. But the fact is that the entirety of the gospel is based on the fact that our hopelessness is taken away by the cross of Christ and we are given hope. The ideal of the Old Testament is that we deserve suffering because of our sin. And this is a very unpopular sermon, and the schedule just kind of came down this way, but this is a bad sermon to speak your first six months at a new church. Because what should I be talking about the first six months? God loves you. I love you. You're the prettiest and smartest, and you smell the best. This is the best church ever. But the crux of the sermon today is you are not okay. We are not good. And not only are we not good, but we are deserving of everything negative and bad to happen and more in this world. This is the crux, and I think we're not impacted because you and I, you and I, don't believe that to be true. Jesus answers this man's condemned status by saying it's not about his sin anymore, but he is blind in order that the work of God might be displayed in him. That word in Greek, works, is erga. It means something active happening. And that word might be displayed as phaneroth, means 
to be revealed, to be, to be made clear. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that even though we are not enough, he is. And that it is an active, convicting, moving, challenging, compelling thing. It's not a, I'm going to church on Sunday and sitting there and being bored for two hours, even though he is really charming. And then I'm going to go home. It is an active, challenging journey that we are invited on by the power of Christ, not by our intellect or our emotional ability to do anything. And he continues in verse 4 four and 5. So now he says, it's not about condemnation for the blind man, but it's about the hope that I am redeeming and restoring him. So now that we have the hope of redemption and restoration, he continues in 4 and 5. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. For as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There is a sense of urgency here. But what is the sense of urgency about? To do the work of God. To do the works of him who sent, who sent me. Jesus is telling the disciples, I have been sent by the Father, and I am offering you hope and redemption in the gospel. And now that you've received it in my presence, you are supposed to join me in this work. We are not the end result of the gospel. We are in the middle process of it. Because what he says here is that I did not come here to make you feel good about yourself. And here's the gospel. I'm going to give it to you. What's your name? Sharon. Sorry to scare you. Sharon, here's the gospel. Now Sharon's going to hold it for the rest of her life saying, gospel. No. The point is that Jesus says, I've offered you hope and redemption for the future. And here's what I've taken away from you. Deserved condemnation and death. And I've given you hope, and what you are supposed to do now, while I have called you, is to take this hope and to give it to whoever, anyone, and everyone that you see and encounter. Matthew 28 says what? Go and make disciples of all nations. And it's not just to go to Kyrgyzstan, but please go to Kyrgyzstan. I'm going to go, so if you want to go with me, then that's cool too. <laughs> Subtle plug there. It's not just to go to Kyrgyzstan or to Belarusia or whatever country we're going to go to, but the idea is that we go here and out, meaning that even in this room, we are supposed to be ambassadors of Christ, holders of light, compassion, and mercy. Now, if you've been here for less than six months, can I ask you a question? Just look at me and blink twice if it's yes. Have you felt compassion and mercy and welcoming here? Not a lot of twice blinking. Just kind of, no. But it begins here, and it goes out from who we are. And what, what we're bringing to them is not eloquence. What we're bringing to them is not convincing theory or argument. What we bring is the light of Christ in compassion, mercy, and grace. And not judgment, not judgment, but it's compassion, understanding, and grace and the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. One of my favorite, most satisfying feelings in life that I've discovered in 35 years is when I'm driving and I pass by someone pulled over by the police. I love that feeling because they deserve it. You sinner. It says 65, you are going 165. You deserve not only to be pulled over, but I hope they give you the maximum fine and that you go to jail and that your children cry because daddy's not home tonight. That's, I mean, that's a little harsh, but you know what I'm saying, right? You understand what I'm saying? I love that feeling. Why? Not because, I, you know, police or whatever, but I like the fact that someone was doing something wrong and they got caught for it. And now they're facing their condemnation. Here's the problem with me. In the gospel, how many, in the gospel, I'm not supposed to drive by and smirk and feel amazing in my heart. 
But I'm supposed to go and I'm, I'm supposed to say what? I've been there. I've been caught by the police too. Yeah, the ticket said 105 and, and 80, but it was really like 140. I was going downhill in Iowa. There's nobody around me. But the fact is that I've been there and I've been caught and I understand how this must be feel. I understand the shame. But remember, brother or sister, that we are not defined by our, our speeding tickets, but we are defined by the grace of God. Now, there is forgiveness here, but can we confess and repent together and, and pursue the glory of God as one? But you know where you and I stop? At the judgment. You and I are the disciples. I don't know if you got that in the beginning. We are the disciples. And we do it super passively. A sister came up to me after first service and said, why is it that we say things like, not to judge, but judgment? No offense, but offense. Everything we say after that. Not to judge you, Pastor Paul, but like, you're fat. I had a kid say that to me here. It's the child of a certain person that I love who's on staff here, but I'm not going to say who it is. Their name starts with a D. <laughs> but I, I was just like, this, this boy guy's no, he's, he, I don't even know where he learned this, but he's like, no offense, but you're fat. And I was like, is it legal to hit him right now? Or like, what, like, what, what, are, what are my response options? But think about that. Even at a young age, even at a young age, we know when we try to preface judgment with these, with these phrases but why judgment feels so good is because, one, we are pushing someone else lower, but two, as we judge others, we are elevating ourselves. Consider that for a second. Why is gossiping fun? And let's just be transparent here. Gossiping is entertaining. If I have to meet someone and we're just catching up about the regular parts of our lives, 10 minutes, we're done. But if she or he has some gossip or dirt, 45 minutes is not enough. Nuh-uh. And then what did she do? Oh, no, girl, stop. <laughs> Two, three hours, and we love it. We relish it. And some of you are looking at me like, I don't like gossiping. Sinner, you just lied. <laughs> you just lied. We all love it. And even men love gossiping. We're not like super giddy about it. We're like, for real? <laughs> did that happen? Nuh-uh. That's so messed up. Oh, what a dummy. We must do the work of Christ if we are truly saved, that is the action of response. To be obedient to the light and the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ. To go, to be, as we are sent by the one who was sent for us, in order to bring grace, not judgment. In order to give mercy, not condemnation. In order to bring the light of Christ, not the darkness of sin. You know, the idea of the blind man and Jesus healing them is the most common miracle performed in his ministry. Do you know why? Because he knows we're dumb. Literally speaking, he wants us to see, I have taken them from the darkness to the light. Not Without me, death and darkness, blindness. With me, eternal life, light and suffering, or not suffering, hope. That was really bad almost. Over and over again. The blind could not see, but because of Christ, we can see. And our understanding of the gospel is, oh, shoot, I've been given the gospel and I can see now? Cool, now I'm going to still sit here and do nothing and just stare at the world now. But Jesus makes this man go from blindness to light. And what does he do in the last six verses of the text? This man goes in faith to this pool and, and he washes away this mud that Jesus puts on his eyes and then he goes and bears witness to all of his neighbors 
Jesus Christ did this because he can't help but to bear witness that Jesus Christ did this. That's an astounding thing. One of the difficult things of meeting with college students is they're college students and they're hard to talk to. It's just because it's sometimes just annoying. I like that all the old people just smiled like, yes, they are. And then the, this side is like, excuse me. <laughs> but when we, talk, when we talk with especially young, young people, young adults and college students about how are you bearing witness in your faith? Because the first question of discipleship is how are you doing in your faith? And the second question should always be how are you bearing witness to it? Because it doesn't end with us. 98% of the time, they say, what? Like, you mean I have to be loving and compassionate and actually say Jesus once in a while? Like, what do you mean? Like, I didn't go drinking, I was drinking last weekend because I went to church and I told my friends that. Is that bearing witness? Not really. Close. I mean, I'm sure they're drinking water and nothing else. But the purpose is that Jesus sends the purpose is that Jesus sends in order to be agents of redemption and of light. And I don't know if we bear witness to that in the reality of who we are. So here are the three points that we'll close with because I know that you're super itching to know what the three points of today are. First thing is this, the reality of sin in our world. Things are not the way they are supposed to be today. Can we just admit to that? Things are not the way they are supposed to be. Divorce is not supposed to happen. Cancer is not supposed to happen. Lions are not to majestically stalk, hunt, and eat lambs. It's kind of cool when it happens, but it's not supposed to happen because that breaks up the harmony and the peace and the shalom of the creation order. Drug trafficking is not supposed to happen. Sex trafficking is not supposed to happen. I am not supposed to stub my toe on the corner wall this morning while I'm feeling around in the darkness to go to the bathroom. I almost didn't make it today. Like, it was so painful, and I was reflecting on this and saying, like, this is not supposed to happen. All walls at home should be curved. But they're not. N.T. Wright says this, We have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine where people put in a coin and get out a particular result. See, you and I think that if we're a good person, then we'll get decent results. But if you're a bad person, then you'll get bad results, and you'll be deserving of them. Right? How many of you think you're a good person? See, this is a horrible question to ask here because this is like the non-participatory group. But I'm going to assume that most people in this group, in this room, think that they're a pretty decent person at best. And some of you probably think you're a good person. And listen, there are great people at this church. I said in first service, like I said this to Deacon Jason, and like when that man walks in the room, I just feel the spirit move. Super holy, super joyful all the time, happy, soft-spoken, doesn't ever get mad at anybody writes the checks on time, whatever. But he's like the greatest guy ever. And I've had like seven conversations with him. And we live in a manner as if, if we're just good enough, then things will turn out okay for us. But then how do, you, how do you work out the fact that bad things happen to you? And, he, and here's why this sermon is difficult. You and I are not good enough. And we're not only not good enough, but we are sinful. And not only are we sinful, but you and I deserve every bad thing that has ever happened to us. You think that was hard? Here's the last part. And more forever. It's a pretty messed up statement. You and I are not enough. Not only that, we are sinful. And we deserve every bad thing that has ever happened to us and more forever. Why? 
because we declared war on the throne of heaven and the righteousness of God by our decision to be disobedient to him. And if you think I didn't choose to be under this authority structure, the fact that you were created does not give us that choice. We were created in his image to be children of God that bring him glory, and we disobeyed. And therefore, according to the Old Testament law, we are worthy of everything bad happening to us and more. Here's why the gospel is astounding and it makes no sense. Jesus says, now because of me and my cross, in faith, you have hope that I will restore and remake you in my righteousness, not yours. That I will make you enough. And not only does he save us in salvation by grace, but he has the audacity to invite us to join in the work with him. Let me tell you why this is ridiculous. When I was seven, I was not the athlete that I am today, all right? I was seven years old, and there was a family, a family that we were really, really close, and the second daughter, she was about 23, her name was Esther, and this girl, homegirl, was trying to be a part of the U.S. Open, tennis, like she was that good at tennis, Okay, and she loved me for some reason. I mean, look at me. But she loved me, and I loved her, and she would come over every Saturday morning to watch cartoons with me. And this was like a young 20s, super smart, beautiful, capable, crazy talented tennis player, and she was watching cartoons with a seven-year-old for an hour on Saturday mornings. Now, I heard through my mother that she was trying out for the US Open to join, to participate in that tournament. And, she, and I was like, good luck, Duna, you're going to be great. That should have been the end of the conversation, right? But here's what she did. Are you busy today? As if a seven-year-old is busy on a Saturday. <laughs> I said, no. And she said, do you want to help me prepare for the tennis tournament and play tennis with me today? Okay. So I, I got a tennis racket that was as big as I was, and we went to a, the tennis court. And she served the ball, and I ran and swing, and I missed. And she said, it's okay, don't worry about it. And then she would serve the ball again, really, really softly, and I would run to the other side and swing, and I would miss. Now listen, just for all purposes, if that was me, I would have never invited the kid. (laughs) U.S. Open scrub seven-year-old who can barely walk straight. I'm not messing with you. It's just not going to happen. But she did this for an hour. At the end of the hour, she didn't say, that was a gigantic waste of my time, and I hate you now. (laughs) She said, thanks, Paul. You helped me get ready. I feel so excited to go play tennis. Are you dumb? (laughs) I'm the kid in the example, too, but what are are you talking about? I I could have given you a cold. I just fanned at you for an hour. What are you talking about? (laughs) But this is the illustration, and this is why I'm grateful. This is the illustration of Christ magnified to infinity. Jesus not only finds an unworthy people, he didn't even go for the worthy, but he goes to an unworthy, deserving of condemnation people, and he said, you were deserving of condemnation and punishment forever, but now in me, in my work, you, are, you have hope. And not only am I restoring and reviving you in the righteousness of my life, but I invite you to be reflections of my light to others. Brothers and sisters, this is not a suggestion, by the way. This is a command. And so if our Christianity ends here after I say amen in my prayer and we just go and we're just like, gospel, Sharon, right? Sharon, bad with names, it's good. Gospel, and this is all, I'm just gonna walk around with the gospel and this is what it is. And without reflecting the grace of God, I don't know what you're doing, but it's not Christianity. 
It's not. It's continuing to live in the judgment of what the disciples are pouring upon this blind man. So if that's the reality of the world, then the second point was that Jesus is the light of the world. And if we receive the light of Christ, then we can only help but reflect it and share it with somebody else. I've shared this illustration ad nauseum with college students, but have you noticed what college students post about? I'm just like putting them on blast today. I'm just, I'm sorry. I'll buy you pizza or something this week. Have you noticed what we post about online? It's not even students, but all of us. If you have kids, you post about your kids. And even though we don't need to see it all the time, look at how cute my kid is. Look at how cute my kid is. Look at how cute my kid is. And most of us who don't have children, what is it? It's food. And God bless my wife. When we, I can't even eat when the food comes. Why? Setting it up. Your family needs to see this. Instagram time. And then like she's all angling like this. And like, get out of the way. Okay. <laughs> Why am I telling you this? We share and we speak about and we post about what we love. You notice that, right? None of you are posting like my work cubicle every single day. No, because you don't like your work cubicle. You know? You don't, you're not my, my, my bathroom vanity. No one cares about that. You post about what you love. And that's an interesting thing. 2012, when the Cleveland Cavaliers were trying to keep LeBron James or whatever that was, they bought a, a 78-foot thing downtown Cleveland about him doing this in the air, like about to dunk a ball, and they had one word underneath it, witness. To witness means to see something and then to be so compelled and go, go talk about it. So for LeBron James, I was like, okay, cool, uh, flopping and crying to the referees, witness. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just messing. But here's what it means for the gospel, though. The call of Christianity here, specifically in Jesus to the blind man, is that after he goes to the pool and wipes off this mud, this man immediately goes to his neighbors and he says, the Christ has done this. Brothers and sisters, that's not an extraordinary model, that's a normal model. That's what we are called to. And so finally, the last thing I want to share with you is this. Now what? The command is to go. Maybe not perfectly, but faithfully. Maybe not perfectly, but passionately. And maybe not perfectly, but obediently. If the people in your life do not know where you are on Sunday morning at a very minimum, something's wrong. If the people in your life do not know why you speak against injustice and why you speak against foul language and why you speak against what you spend, you know, wasting money or resources or whatever, this planet, then something's wrong. Charles Spurgeon says, I wonder how many Christians it would be known that they are trying to point to Christ in all things in their lives. Charles Spurgeon, basically what he's saying is, a lot of Christians, when you see the result of their lives, you, you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell whose light they're reflecting. Is it theirs or is it yours? The gospel cannot be good news unless we know that we are in the darkness without Christ. It cannot. The gospel cannot be good news unless we know that without Christ, we are not only condemned, but we are deserving to be eternally in the darkness of our sin. Our sin must be bitter for Christ to be sweet. And if you're new today, sorry that I'm preaching and sorry that the message is so harsh. But this is not a message of condemnation, it's hope. I'm not saying that your suffering is worthless, and I'm not saying that some of you who are carrying the burden of incredibly hard and broken and difficult things, I'm not saying that it's pointless and that no one cares. God cares. God addresses the blindness of the man. 
What I am saying is that no matter what we carry in Christ, ultimately you and I have the audacity to hope because of the work that he is doing in our lives and that he is calling us to bear witness to. Let me leave you with Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death and condemnation and brokenness. But, and this is a ginormous but, it's huge, but the gift of God, the gift of God given for you is eternal life and hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. And may that be something that sustains you in the darkness. And may that be something that increases the light of your reflection of who Jesus is and all that you do. Let's pray. Father, whenever we encounter you, nothing stays the same. And sometimes that's hard and it's difficult because we think that we are not really in need of who you are and what you offer to us. We think that we are good enough. And at a minimum, at least we're decent enough. And we overlook our brokenness because who likes to admit that we are not enough? But Lord, you, you encounter and you engage with this blind man, literally, physically, and spiritually in the darkness in order to show not condemnation but mercy how all things change in your cross and in the gospel of grace that you offer. Father, you give us hope when we have no business in ever desiring or even attaining it. And Lord, we confess that our hearts have been so hardened against you and so caught up in the lie that we are enough that this grace offered doesn't really convict or move or challenge us. Lord, forgive us of our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion against you. Help us to recognize that we are saved by you for the purpose of glorifying who you are and your kingdom. And Lord, that it is an amazing thing that you invite us, broken, not enough, unworthy us, to join in as reflections of your light to those in our lives that you have given us to witness to. Father God, humble us at this time, convict our hearts, but also compel and encourage us to go forth to live faithfully after you today and tomorrow, and however many days we have on this earth. And Lord, we trust that you are enough, and that you are good, and that your love endures forever. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.